Welcome back to He's Dead, Jim. We're watching Star Trek, the original series, one episode at a time. And this week we ask the question... What if a mean bureaucrat overruled your decisions and endangered your crew in space? You can have a try. Do you want to have a try? No. You just make some big statement and then say, In space. <laughs> um, I can't remember what I say next after that. It's been so long. <laughs> I'm Mick McConnell. Please welcome the intergalactic Emily Lind. Hello. Good evening, Emily. How are you? I am doing okay. We're we're alive. Our podcast is still happening, even though Hi, everybody. we've been a little bit lax in actually recording lately. Thanks to thanks to all the he's deaders that have been checking in on us on Facebook and the socials, checking we're still alive. We are indeed alive and well, thank you. Uh, we've just been super busy podcasters at the moment. Yeah. Right. Emily, Emily, you've been potting away on Canabite Dispatch. Yep. We're trying to anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, look, some, sometimes you just can't podcast every day, week. That's it. <laughs> so good to talk to you, Emily, for the first time in many weeks. And, uh, great to be, have a chance to talk about Trek again. Yeah. I, I probably should have rewatched this episode because I mean originally we were gonna record a couple weeks ago and and I watched it then and then should have watched it again but didn't. Ah, it's all good. I watched it a couple of times over the weekend and uh, it's pretty straightforward. It's a good app though. I think it's a good app. I enjoyed it. There's giants. Yes. <laughs> it is. It is a little bit like. Flash Gordony, maybe. Yes, and just every sort of B grade sci-fi or horror movie where you've got a an actor in a costume just acting big and slow, but you know they're, <laughs> they're not really much of a threat as an enemy, as we'll get to later on. They they're trying to appear intimidating, but while they're lumbering along overacting, you know, the, the good guys could easily escape just walking away. Yeah. This week we watched the Galileo 7, uh, which is, uh, in season one is uh, episode 16, and on Netflix it's episode 17. Uh, it originally broadcast on NBC on January 5, 1967. It's written by Oliver Crawford who Wikipedia tells me is an American screenwriter who survived the Hollywood blacklist during the McCarthy era um, oh. and uh, went on to become the entertainment industry's, one of the entertainment industry's most successful writers uh, and wrote for the standards like, you know, Star Trek, as well as Star Trek, he wrote for Bonanza and Perry Mason and the Craft Television Theatre which is something I'd love to know more about. Do you know much about craft mystery theatre or craft television theatre? I I have never even heard of it, but I'm guessing sort of like a anthology, sort of like a, maybe like a mystery version of Twilight Zone or something. Yeah, I'd like to know more about that. It doesn't, like having the sponsor's name in the title of the show doesn't really, like it doesn't, shout that it's going to be a you know, high quality drama like Shakespeare to me. 
but maybe it is. I mean, there was definitely it's something that happened more back then. Well, there was one. Oh, what was the big one? The um. Oh, a mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom is the one that immediately comes to mind. It was. It was just like it was like nature d- documentaries. Ah, uh, there you go. What was the what was the sponsor? Sorry. Uh, mutual of Omaha. Oh, okay. So is that like a bank or a investment? Uh, like investment life insurance. Uh, okay. There you go. Well, at least they had a budget. So apparently, Craft Television Theater was broadcast live from Thirty Rock, from the same <laughs> studio as Saturday Night Live. Oh, okay. So exciting. There you go. I need to learn more about that. Uh, so we have an interesting screenwriter um, and ro- directed by Robert Gist, who was also an actor as well. And I didn't get a chance to learn much about his filmography, so I'll move on. <laughs> Looks like bit parts in movies and TV. Okay, so he's an actor and a director. Okay, so it's Stardate 2821.5. So the Stardates are starting to sound a bit more logical now, I think. Um, the Enterprise is heading to Mocus 3 to deliver medical supplies to stop an outbreak on the new Paris colony. Uh, but their route takes them past Murasaki 312, which Kirk describes as a quasar-like formation and a priceless opportunity for scientific investigation. Um, new Paris colony sounds exciting, apart from the whole plague outbreak. Yeah, I, I like to avoid those if I can. Would you like to visit New Paris apart from that? I mean, okay, this is maybe not because my immediate association is where I grew up. We were There was like a really small town, like 15 minutes outside of us that was called New Paris. So I just think of like, oh, they had a really shitty mall. <laughs> any Any sort of plagues? Any quarantines yeah. in New Paris? Not that I can remember. I, I feel, Yeah, I feel like if there had been a plague outbreak, that's something that would stick in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, New Paris. So no, was there much culture? Were there any art galleries in New Paris? There was probably a Walmart where you could buy some really like movie posters nice a motivational yeah like kittens kittens hanging off of trees stuff like that nice high culture so no no beautiful architecture no definitely not i mean again walmart sweet (laughs) nothing says paris like walmart yeah uh, so we get the the version we're watching on Netflix has the added CGI, which was done somewhere around, I'm guessing, the late 90s or early 2000s. And the Murasaki 312 Quasar thing looks really cool, I think. It looks all, all that sort of the galaxies and space phenomena, I think, re- look really great. Yes, they do. 
What doesn't look so great is the ships and the shuttlecraft. Oh, the shuttle looks terrible. Um, so we get a few shots of the shuttle, you know, the shuttle bay and the shuttles launching and landing. And it really looks like it's very basic CGI. It really looks like, you know, a, a cutscene from an old video game. Yeah, that's that's what it really brought to mind. You know, I again like this this the galaxy and the space phenomenon looks really cool, but I I kinda wish I had the unremastered ones just because I find that the the cartoon ships really distracting. Yeah, I just wanna and it's it's like the the shapes are very basic. They're sort of too maybe a bit too simple and the there's no real texture on them. Like they just look like shiny plastic. Yeah. Everything's really, everything's really flat. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, like surely even models of ships would be better. I don't know why they. Oh yeah, definitely. So maybe there's maybe they've added shots of the shuttle where they felt it was needed, where originally they didn't, maybe there were no shuttle shots or. Just don't know, or maybe they just had a as the selling point for a box set of DVDs. They had to have a quota of so much, so many minutes of added scenes. Yeah, that could be. But uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, that that's the only thing that sort of you know slightly takes you out of it. Um, but the yeah, the the space phenomena and stuff looks looks beautiful. So on the bridge, uh, the. Galactic High Commissioner, Commissioner Ferris, enters. He's wearing a, a blue tunic and has kind of a, maybe not paisley, but sort of a floral cravat or something like that. <laughs> it's a nice look. Uh, he's a lame, no-fun bureaucrat, uh, and he's on board to oversee the delivery of medical supplies to Mocus 3. Uh, and he says, I remind you, Captain, that I'm entirely opposed to this delay. Uh, he's very passive-aggressive. Um, he keeps reminding Kirk about boring things like their mission and, you know, emergency medical supplies and the out-of-control plague, just boring things like that while Kirk's trying to have fun and explore the galaxy. Yeah, yeah, that does, that does seem a bit... Like, I understand we're supposed to hate this bureaucrat guy, but he's kind of right. <laughs> yeah, like he's he's dead right. Um, but he's also very just snarky and passive aggressive, so it's easy to hate him, even though he's right. <laughs> Contrary to the commissioner's orders, Kirk has apparently standing orders to investigate all quasars and quasar-like phenomena. How do you feel about that order? I mean. That's fine insofar. I mean, it's very specific, but I mean, they are on an exploratory mission. Like, that's their overarching, like, reason to be out there. That's their five-year mission. Yeah, I guess that's right. Makes you wonder if they could double back, but I guess they're talking about traveling for five days at warp, so... (laughs) Yeah, how how fast they can go places really varies a lot in Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, it varies to suit the story. 
Um, Kirk reminds the High Commissioner that, okay, they're only three days away from Marcus 3 and the rendezvous won't take place for five days. So they've got a couple of days up their sleeve. I have a question. Yeah. If they're if they're three days away, yeah. What what is this rendezvous in five days? So Moccas three, there must be some some other craft or something that's going from Moccas three to New Paris. Oh, okay. To the yeah, colony, okay. I, I All right, think. that that makes more sense. I just again, I haven't I haven't watched this episode for a couple of weeks. Yeah, I think that's I think that's how it works. And so we're cut to Spock and a small crew in a shuttle, and the shuttle's called the Galileo, hence the name, the Galileo 7. The 7 are the crew, and they're launching from the hangar, uh, and we get the CGI of the shuttle exteriors, which is very basic. It looks like an old, sort of reminded me of like an old architectural mock-up. Yeah. So we have Spock... Scotty and McCoy and four like random people. Why exactly this quasar like phenomenon research requires a doctor and the ship's <laughs> engineer is not entirely clear to me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the Oh, I suppose Fox the science officer, so that makes sense. Again, I don't know why you can't send a probe, uh, but they all want to go and see the sights. Yeah, it's interesting. So as they get closer to the quasar, the shuttle's instruments start going crazy, and then they start to get pulled into the center of the quasar. And uh, Spock tries to radio the Enterprise, but because of the interference, only part of the message gets through. So the Enterprise... Uh, Gets to, Uhura gets to hear that they're, you know, the shuttle's off course, but that's basically all that gets through. So they know they're lost somewhere in this giant phenomena, which is seems to be the size of a solar system. So that could be anywhere. And the Enterprise's scanning instruments are out uh, because of the basically a huge amount of radiation. So. They don't have any communications with the shuttle. They don't have any good way of detecting where it is. And we get close-ups of the Galactic High Commissioner, sort of just close-ups on his eyes and that sort of thing, and he just almost looks as if he's enjoying the whole situation. I mean, he did tell Kirk that they shouldn't be doing this. So I feel like a little bit he's like, dude, this is why I told you not to do this. Yeah. I mean, he's right. Like, it's... Seems dumb and seems like if quasars are so important and you've got a couple of days up your sleeve, why don't you go and drop off the stuff and then double back? Um, but he, this commissioner does seem to enjoy what's going on. I think he's a bit of a corporate psychopath. Yeah. Uh, or, or whatever, government psychopath, <laughs> bureaucratic psychopath. Well, that's- I mean, he is, yeah, he is the standard even though this is not his actual title, like within Star Trek, he is the, the like angry admiral character that you get a whole lot. Yeah. Kirk versus Ferris is kind of, it's a bit like dirty Harry versus the police commissioner and Kirk doesn't want to play by the rules. Yeah. Kirk has two days to find the missing shuttle lost somewhere within the massive Murasaki phenomena. 
And he has to do it with the Galactic Commissioner whinging in his ear the whole time and basically saying, I told you so. Uhura has identified the only planet that could support human life in, in this solar system. It's called Taurus 2. It's unexplored and it's located in the centre of the Murasaki effect. Uh, Kirk vows to search for the shuttle until the last second. Uh, the commissioner is cold and starts quoting regulations. He's going to take over and order the Enterprise to leave in two days. Kirk orders uh, shuttlecraft Columbus to launch, which seemed reckless to me to start off with. I'm like, okay, so you're going to lose another shuttle. <laughs> yeah. But maybe they're just not going quite so close to the phenomena. I don't know. So meanwhile, on the surface of Taurus 2, uh, the shuttle's landed and Spock's outside checking components. Inside the shuttle, Scotty's underneath the control panel pulling out components and he says, it's very bad, Mr. Spock. They've lost a lot of fuel and they don't have enough left to reach escape velocity, so if they can, they'll have to settle for getting up into orbit and hope they can make contact with Enterprise. Uh, but to do that, they need to shed 500 pounds. So Spock immediate, immediately replies, that's the weight of three grown men. And uh, I love that that's his first go-to, by the way. Immediately. No calculation required. McCoy's appalled, and he says, you know, immediately replies, all the equiv- equivalent weight in equipment. I mean, there are a bunch of chairs that look pretty heavy. Yeah, just start breaking, snapping chairs off and chucking them out. You don't need chairs when you're um, dying in orbit, (laughs) when you're choking. Spock explains that apparently they'll need all the equipment they have to achieve orbit, Um, so the only excess weight is in the crew. So basically at least three of them are going to die on the planet, so it's pretty tense. Uh, Mr. Bomber, one of the crewmen, asks uh, who will remain behind and will they have to draw lots? He's very tense about it and Spock is calm as always and says, uh, explains that he will choose and it will be a decision based on logic. Uh, McCoy says life and death are so seldom logical. So that's what this episode is about, I guess, logic versus emotion in command in a tough situation. Yeah. And it gets like, it gets a little bit like, I, like, I honestly don't know what I'm supposed to be thinking in some parts of this episode in terms of who I'm supposed to be siding with. Yeah. So I, I guess this, like this really seems to be an early mission for Spock. I'm sure we've had Spock in charge of the whole enterprise before. So again, I don't know should look back at the order these were actually shot in, but I wonder, is this meant to be an earlier episode and Spock's first go at command? Seems weird. One thing that I think is interesting is we get the contrast between Spock's emotionless logic and the, um, the galactic commissioner's logic, which, you know, it both, both, both their points of view are logical and they're following, you know, the rules, but um, Spock does it without emotion and he seems to be like what he says. 
I always seem to agree with Spock. It seems to be easy to agree with Spock, but yet because the High Commission is quite passive-aggressive, it seems to be very hard to side with him. Yeah. Well, and we just, we like Spock. Yeah, that's it. That's it. But something about, yeah, the argument he puts forward is hard to disagree with. McCoy says life and death are seldom logical and Spock replies, but attaining a desired goal always is, which I thought was interesting. Um, Spock suggests they go outside and look over the hull in case they've overlooked any minor damage. And as soon as he leaves, Mr. Bomber um, says the only damage they've overlooked is when they put his head together. And McCoy says, not his head, Mr. Bomber, his heart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think Spock's hiding a heart in there, though, which we see again and again. Oh, definitely. Sometimes intentionally and sometimes probably just I feel like the writers forget who Spock is. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think he, his heart's always his last card he plays. Outside on the planet, it's uh, rocky and primordial. There's a thick vapor rising out of the ground, so visibility is very poor. It's like a London fog. Uh, we hear the sound of snarling creatures, and uh, Mr. Latimer and Mr. Gatano, uh, they're walking slowly along with their phasers ready, and the sounds of snarling seem to be coming from all around them. So they, they try and head back, but suddenly we see the end of a huge spear and a giant caveman-like creature we see from behind. He's standing in furs and he's got a, got a shield and he throws a spear which plunges into Mr. Latimer's back and sends him falling off a cliff. And uh, the rest of the crew working back at the shuttle here, Mr. Latimer screams and then Spock and Mr. Bomber head after them. Mr. Gatano is there firing his phaser almost randomly into the mist, um, but he thinks he's hit the creature or hit one of the creatures. Um, Spock checks out the bloody spear and uh, says it re- resembles the Folsom Point discovered in 1925 in New Mexico, North America. <laughs> he's really well-versed in ancient Earth history. Yes, and and specifically, yeah, twentieth century um, American history. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. He never say yeah. He never seems to find anything that resembles something on Vulcan. Yeah, or even something from like, you know, twenty two thirty four or something. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Something more contemporary. It's all done with the TV audience in mind. Back on the Enterprise bridge, the Columbus has returned without finding anything. The Enterprise's instruments are still down. The Galactic Commissioner watches on from the background. I don't like this guy, but that's because I'm yeah, I'm I'm a good audience member. I'm I'm told I'm not supposed to like this guy, so I don't. I mean, yeah, pretty much. Should I be sympathetic toward him? Well, I mean, it's a TV show, so no. Okay. But he is, however much he is being a big jerk, he's also absolutely right. Yes, absolutely. That's what makes it worse, I think. On the other hand, once you've given Kirk two days, maybe 
until like a day and a half or a day and 22 hours, you just sort of leave him be. Yeah. You don't need to keep reminding him that there's this deadline while he's (laughs) trying to find his lost crewman. (laughs) (laughs) On the planet, Mr. Bomber demands a decent burial for Latimer, but Spock refuses as they're working against time to repair the shuttle. Now, I think Spock is quite reasonable here. Yeah, are we... Okay, whose side are we supposed to be on here? Is this supposed to be a, oh, look how cold and logical Spock is moment? Because... I feel like this guy is totally out of line. Yeah, definitely. Uh, McCoy seems to side with him, though. I'm sort of like, just they're under attack. Um, this planet sucks. They're under attack. They're they're stranded on this planet. They need to repair the ship. Uh, uh, who cares about burying this guy? Yeah, like have a service when you get back. And those, yeah, these are yeah. sort of military people. They're not, you know, they're not civilian engineers or whatever. They're supposed to be down with the mission. Um, McCoy and sorry, there's a, there's a female crew member that I don't think her name comes up in this at all. So I'm just going to call her the woman, and I feel terrible about that. <laughs> McCoy and the token woman have reduced the equipment load, but they're still uh, they're still 150 pounds too heavy, uh, which means one person might need to go. Um, Scotty has uh, some dramas with the fuel lines, uh, which means they now have no fuel. Good going, Scotty. Nice. <laughs> but this is where Spock's logic. His cold logic has um, you know, positive effects because he, uh, Spock advises Scotty you know, to consider the alternatives when humans would have given up. Um, and Scotty says, you know, what alternatives? We have no fuel. And then Spock says there are, there are always alternatives. So when everybody else would have given up, Scott, um, Spock's still completely unfazed and trying to find a solution. Spock, Mr. Bomber, and Mr. Gatano go after the caveman creatures and fire at them to try and... Their plan is to fire at them to scare them off. Uh, One of the creatures throws a spear and a shield at them. And uh, did you notice when the shield lands next to the humans, it's about five times the size it was when the caveman was holding it? It's it's so great. I I love this shit. It's one of my favorite things in watching like old fifties monster movies, like Attack of the Giant. You know, fill in the blank. Yeah, yep, exactly what this is. So funny. Yeah, so these cavemen are apparently more gigantic than they appear. Spock and Mr. Bomber um, make the logical decision to just leave uh, Mr. Gatano alone to stand guard. So he's obviously fucked. <laughs> Back in the shuttle, Spock has the idea to transfer the power from their phases into the shuttle to fuel it up. Um, so Scotty starts working away on that. Uh, meanwhile, the Enterprise now has the transporters up and running. So Kirk beams down a crew to the planet. Uh, just picks a random location and gets them to go down and have a look around, even though it's a massive planet. Um, so Kirk's really just at, trying things out of desperation. 
our poor Mr. Gatano is now under attack and the creature chucks a huge rock at him and smashes his arm and he drops his phaser. And then we get the camera sort of starting to close in on him as he desperately claws at the cliff in a pathetic attempt to climb away. Uh, and then just basically turns to face the caveman beast who's covered in furs and basically very slowly walks toward him. <laughs> and it's one of these accidentally comical situations. And he lifts up both his arms in the air and then just slowly brings them down onto Gitano and then he starts screaming. So anybody could literally just get up and walk away from this creature at a normal speed and be totally fine. <laughs> so we get the, the actor overacting to seem big and gigantic or whatever. Spock and McCoy and Mr. Bomber find uh Mr. Gatano's phaser later and Spock tells them to take it back to the shuttle and uh, hands them his own phaser as well in case something happens to him and he goes off by himself to find uh, Mr. Gatano and uh, he soon finds his body and puts it over his shoulder to carry him back to the shuttle, um, which, I, again, I don't see the point in there. <laughs> They're under attack and they've got to get away, but... Um, and then all of a sudden the spears start raining down on them. This is one of my favorite parts because when these when these spears come and, and we'll see them later, is there some of them are thrown like you would throw a spear. But some of them seem to be tossed, so they just like sort of fall down parallel. <laughs> they're so they're not they're not like they're, like you wouldn't like because you chuck a spear at somebody. And like a forward motion. But some of them, it looks like they were just sort of dropped from above. Yeah, yeah. It's hilarious. So they just sort of plonk near them. Um, I wonder if it, there's a few shots where you see the spears flying sort of between cliffs. And I wonder if they've only made a few spears so that quickly people are quickly grabbing them and passing them back behind the scenes to drop them again. <laughs> Probably. And you know, this is only, there's supposed to be lots of these creatures, but we only ever see one. So they're very, very cost effective. Yeah. On the shuttle, Scotty's using some sort of, sort of lens, like a magnifying glass or something weird. Uh, he's got it held up to his eye and he's sort of looking inside the phases and moving them about, like just trying to find if there's any power left in there or something. And it <laughs> looks like a toddler's, like a plastic play toy. It's clearly, yeah, it's just made of green and red plastic and there's no way you can see anything through it. Yeah, it's very it's I I, I always like to, to see these, much like with some of the old Doctor Who props where it's like, Well, yes. I had some plungers, so I stuck them on this thing. Well that's that's what the Daleks now, are. Now isn't it's it? alien. Yeah. Yeah, which is which is incredible because they're, you know, all these years later, they've they've updated the design here and there, but it's still the basic look of them. The new the new Daleks that can fly about and stuff do they still have like the egg beater sticking out of them? I think so. I mean, they do have various like protruding like attachment things. I never liked the flying. I don't like the flying. Don't like the flying at all. A bit like R two D 2s jetpacks. 
Yeah. Maybe I'm just a curmudgeon, but I don't I don't like it. At least with Doctor Who, like the new stuff is set in the future, so there's some sort of logic behind them evolving and developing new technology, I guess. Yeah, you yeah, you can be like, "Oh, these are upgraded ones." Yeah. I think like the original Daleks are Obviously, their lasers or whatever their weapons they've got are terrifying because they just, you know, just vaporize you instantly. Um, but they're they're basically like a large washing machine on wheels. They're not <laughs> like as as if you're being chased by Daleks. It wasn't a particularly sort of terrifying thing. Yeah, I guess I take my hat off to the actors. They they have to sell that this is a threat. Or in Scotty's case, he has to sell this weird plastic children's toy is uh, some high-tech equipment, and he, he does a good job, I think. Some sort of handy instrument. Yeah. Some of the things like, yeah, on the, I think we talked about before, some of the, even just the, the food that the, they eat in the mess hall on the Enterprise, like, clearly looks like brightly coloured cubes of plasticine. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, they do a good job of selling it. It's clear that the creatures were not scared off at all. Um, Spock apparently expected them to behave rationally and um, be intimidated by the um, the crew's um, superior weapons. Uh, and McCoy sort of gives him a bit of a lecture and says anyone that they're not... They're not behaving rationally at all. They're behaving emotionally, and anyone with emotions could have seen that coming. You would think at some point that would factor into, like, all of Spock's smart Vulcan logic, that he's been around humans and other, like, people long enough to know even if he, you know, has restrains his own emotions, would know to factor that stuff in. Like, that would seem to be the logical thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, well, this this episode is very different to all the others. It's clearly sort of trying to show Spock being slightly out of his depth. And that's what makes me wonder if it was, like, one of the stories that was written early on or... or produced earlier yeah, that could be we've seen him do all sorts of crazy things we saw him take over the whole enterprise and reprogram the computer and steal the ship basically <laughs> so he's um he's definitely not afraid to take command when he needs to and he's never been anything but competent in every other episode so while they're in the shuttle they're all sitting in the shuttle having this debate uh suddenly the shuttle starts shaking and we see one of the beasts outside slamming a huge boulder down on the roof. Um, so, it's so good. Yeah, surely that's yeah they're going to have some more than minor damage <laughs> to the hull. What I love about this is okay. So this was what sixty seven. Yeah. You said. Yeah. Yep. Sixty seven. That this was this one was recorded or first aired. Okay, yeah, so in January '67, yep. the the method of the ship is shaking back then is still 
what they use now, which is everybody acts like they're being thrown around. (laughs) And like, it's been like, there's no evolution in how good people are this in terms of, Oh, that looks realistic. Now it's still just as cheesy today as it was in 67. Yep. So there wouldn't be anything physically going on with the shuttle with the just camera moves. Yeah, and it's just it's just like on you know on like when they when they cut to the people inside, it's just like when you know the Enterprise is under fire or whatever. It's you just move back and forth slightly. <laughs> so good. So while this is all going on, Scott is under pressure to try and drain the power out of the phases, but apparently it just takes time and it's nothing they can do. There's two hours and 42 minutes before the Enterprise has to leave. Uh, the shuttle's been shaking like crazy and uh, Spot, uh, Spock comes up with the idea of using the ship's batteries to electrify the outside of the shuttle. Scotty picks up a battery and everybody moves away from any metal objects in the shuttle. Uh, well, uh, Scotty electrocutes whatever's outside and then uh, after a few zaps, finally the roaring stops and the shuttle is still... And apparently they'll have just enough battery now for ignition. Uh, Mr. Bomber is adamant that he wants to go outside immediately and bury the dead crew, which is just insane. I think anybody would be just like, keep me in the shuttle and let's do everything we can to just get off the planet and maybe get home. Yeah, for sure. It's crazy. And Spock, yeah, reluctantly lets him go out. Maybe Spock's just hoping we'll lose one more crewman. (laughs) (laughs) Landing party number two beams back aboard the Enterprise uh, and they reveal they were attacked by these creatures. Uh, One of them is dead and two are injured. Um, So that's it for any hope of the landing party finding anybody. Galactic Commissioner Ferris orders Kirk to recall all the search parties and proceed to Mocus 3 immediately. And then he leaves the bridge and Kirk orders Sulu to proceed to Mocus 3 at space normal speed. I think this is the first mention I've heard of space normal speed. Um, Why would you ever go anywhere at normal speed? Yeah, that's right. Or why would normal, uh, or rather, why would normal speed apparently be like the slowest speed possible? That's right. What's space normal speed? So this is, I guess this is impulse power and not warp. Is yeah. That, I guess what we're, yeah. yeah, what that evolved into. Um, what is it space normal speed? Is that versus, I don't know, orbit speed or something? I don't know. Reading too much into it, uh, but it sounds cool. If you put space in front of any, anything, it sounds awesome. <laughs> Even if it's, yeah, that's the, the most exciting way to say go slowly. Sulu's a bit surprised, but he follows the order. Um, Sensors are finally starting to come back online, and Kirk orders uh, that they be directed toward the back of the ship and um, see what they can see in in last desperate hope before they um, leave the system. Let me see. The shuttle crew, for some reason, they're all outside. I guess they've gone to help. Maybe they've gone to help with a barrel or something, which is stupid. Um, They're attacked, and Spock is pinned under a huge rock, and he orders them to take off and leave him. 
with the illogical humans uh, go and rescue him and help him back into the shuttle. And then they take off, uh, despite apparently the creatures trying to hold the shuttle down. <laughs> uh, they make it to orbit, but they only have enough fuel to stay up there for 45 minutes. Uh, there's no sign of the Enterprise at all, and they can't make radio contact. And then suddenly, to the horror of Scotty and the rest of the crew, Spock seemingly randomly flips a switch and jettisons the fuel, and then he ignites it, which looks awesome, by the way. Yeah, this is one of those things that where the where the like the new stuff looks probably much better than the old stuff. It looks good as like a cool green plasma. The Enterprise um, spot the the cool green trail cruising across the planet. Um, back on the shuttle, Scotty and McCoy realise that Spock was taking a gamble and setting off a distress signal, and they're sort of smiling. They're quite quite impressed by his illogical choice. Unfortunately, the orbit immediately begins to decay and the shuttle starts burning up right as the Enterprise manages to beam them to safety at the very last moment. And uh, Kirk turns and says, proceed on course to Mockers 3, Warp Factor 1. So the day is saved. I like that there is, because because when they spot the shuttle, they know that there's like five uh, life signs aboard. Or maybe when, they, maybe when they're beamed up, they're like, oh, we got five of them. And there is just like, oh, there's no acknowledgement that there were seven people originally. Yeah, you get that a bit, actually, where they... Oh, they're just random crewmen anyway, so who cares? Yeah, because like Kirk just sort of, like, he smiles, but I'm like, hey, for all you know, Spock and McCoy are both dead. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, how do you know which one's made it? <laughs> and wouldn't you sort of check... <laughs> Before you warp away, like, is there anybody still back on the planet? Getting spears dropped horizontally on them. <laughs> um, and then we get a scene from later on where Kirk's holding court on the bridge and uh, he's asking Spock about his illogical actions that saved the day and Kirk tries to get Spock to admit that he acted emotionally, but... Spock's able to rationalise that his decisions were all arrived at logically. And then we get, like we've had a few of these, we get the classic fake laughter on the bridge and the credits roll up. So it's starting to get a little bit tired, but um, I think overall a pretty good Yeah, episode. I feel like we're going we're gonna to have a lot more of those endings too. Oh, Spock, you're different. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Anyway, but... Uh, I think a pretty good episode. It was tense. How do you feel about it? You know, it's pretty fun. Like, it's definitely the effects are silly, but it has like from a from a modern viewpoint, I kind of dig the the old like B movie sci fi story of it all. Yeah, yeah. I, I um. It has, but it ticks both of those boxes. It has the weird, dodgy stuff, which is accidentally hilarious. Um, but I, yeah, I like the tension, and I like the comparison between the 
the two logical people that approach logic from very different angles in the commissioner. I like the title of Galactic High Commissioner. Yeah. I think I think it's a nice little parallel. I like his cravat. Oh, definitely. I always like to to see the fashion choices. I don't yeah, I don't think it's a very bureaucratic asshole fashion choice. I don't know why. <laughs> the bureaucrats bureaucrats don't wear cravats. Uh, anyway, I think that's about the episode. Anything else you wanted to chuck in on that? Oh, there is one little fun tidbit and that the there is a book by um, Diane Carey. He wrote like a ton of, of Star Trek books, like one of the like probably one of the, the most prolific in terms of, I you know, just she's just a name you see a lot on the on the ones and she wrote one called dreadnought which came out in 86 and apparently um boma comes back as a character and the the story is that scotty demanded that he be court-martialed for him like constantly challenging and disobeying spock and oh, got him go. and got him and got him kicked out. Oh wow. Which is funny because you, you sort of go, "Oh yeah, totally." Like that was insubordination and not only that, but insubordination during like an, an emergency, which he has got to carry like even bigger penalties in terms of like military situations. That doesn't sort of really gel with Scotty's character though, I think. Well, I don't know. I mean, because I, 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 I haven't, I haven't read the book, but I, I maybe there's like some like maybe Scotty like had other reasons for disliking this guy too. But I thought I thought it was it was an interesting little bit of information. Scotty strikes me. He doesn't strike me as the guy that would like if. He needed to deal with somebody. Strikes me as he'd go over and punch him, and yeah. then that'd be it. <laughs> like it doesn't strike me as a guy that'd hold on to a grudge or, or um, you know, I, I, it, it strikes me as somebody who'd be pretty quick to forgive too. Um, yeah, so we we didn't talk about, or, or I, I didn't sort of mention that, but there was sort of a lot more, I guess, kind of insubordination from Mister Bomber. Um, I think at one point he's just, you know, he's upset about his friends and he tries to reason with Mr. Spock about wanting a proper burial and wanting him as the captain to say a few words. And um, he, he says, you know, even if you were out there, I'd go and bury your body or something like that. And everybody's sort of shocked and everyone, <laughs> that's when uh, Scotty and McCoy sort of start to fire up a bit. But uh, there's a lot of times in that episode where McCoy's, Sort of right on uh, Mr. Bomber's side, though. That's what it sort of makes it a bit hard. You get a senior senior officer that agrees with him. Yeah. So interesting. I like Mr. Bomber, but uh, I completely disagree with him. <laughs> I can't understand why he'd want to be outside having rocks thrown on his head rather than blasting off. Yeah, like try to save the rest of the people. 
so you can stop having funerals. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Otherwise, somebody's got to go out there and bury him too. Never ending. Uh, according to Wikipedia, without any sources, uh, this episode was based on the movie Five Came Back, uh, which inst- incidentally uh, starred Lucille Ball. Oh, there we go. Our um, champion of Star Trek and owner of the studio. Now it's time to check out the mailbag. Okay, and this is from Mark. Uh, Again, it is subject line Galileo 7. Hi, Emily and Mick. Was skeptical about Shirley, but your review really brought it to life. What a great podcast. Made me giggle. Thanks. I remembered Galileo 7 as an original series landmark episode with its prejudice against Spock's authority and the conflict between compassion and urgency to survive. Lots of tension. Lovely episode. Be interested to hear what you think. I want to ask you about Star Trek conventions. Never been to one, but I saw a Next Generation convention broadcast on YouTube recently. It really struck me what amazing fun Marina Sirtis is, but I've never thought that the buoyant, fun personality spilled over into Counselor Deanna Troy's character. Deanna always seemed a little serious to me. What do you guys think? It looks like they had great fun filming it and help, and that helped make the next generation work. Loving Discovery. Thanks for the lead. Best wishes, Mark from UK land. Thanks, Mark. Awesome email. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, she she never really got to do much fun stuff as Troy. We never really saw the more like light-hearted side of that character. She was always supposed to like be, look concerned and tell us that people were lying when they were totally obviously lying. Yep. But her special empathy skills conceal. Yeah. I think that's it. She's she's maybe feeling too much to be light-hearted. She's feeling everyone's problems. She has the weight of the universe on her shoulders. She's a very she's a very nice character. She's a very like loving, caring character. Which is good for your counselor. She definitely like she seems happy, but yeah. Yeah, because Marina always does like she does she seems like super fun and in interviews and stuff. And actually super fun and a bit cheeky, maybe. In an entertaining yeah. way. Yeah, and she's actually she was actually the guest at the one Star Trek convention I went to when I was a kid. Oh, that would have been awesome. Which, I mean, especially because little me, like now I sort of go like, I know that like the running joke with Next Generation is how useless she w- was as, as like, why do you sit next to the captain on this starship? But <laughs> but as a little kid, she was my favorite, like hands down. I loved her character. Oh, she's she's definitely she's definitely still one of my favorites. Yeah, I think that was interesting that like the captain obviously valued her insight. She was the languages expert, so the the captain had her on board to be the first compa- uh, contact and uh like she's very important from a diplomatic stance. Yeah, I always I don't know. I just I thought I don't know, like as a little kid I loved her and so I think that sort of colored how I see her as an adult, which is I still she's still a character I really like. Yeah, I think she's cool. Um, Marina, uh, like she, I've seen clips of her at conventions and interviews and things where she sort of takes the piss out of the fans a bit. She's very good. And I think she had like, 
she talked about um, you know fans asking her, you know, why are all the aliens humanoid in Star Trek? And um, she's just basically said, you know, because it's very hard to get you know humans to act as other shapes, basically. <laughs> well, yeah, especially like on a weekly TV show. Yeah, yeah, they have to be have to have some sort of humanoid resemblance. Yeah, and it needs to be, you know, makeup you can put on somebody in, you know, a few hours. Yeah. I suppose nowadays is a bit a bit different where you could probably have a believable CGI character. Almost, maybe. I'm glad they don't. Yeah, but only like honestly, like even then you'd have to like have a pretty decent budget for your show. Yeah, that's right. To make it look good. Um, but yeah, yeah, I haven't been to any Star Trek conventions, so I better make that my mission. I don't, there's got to be some group of Star Trek nerds that hang out somewhere in Brisbane. I'll make that my mission to head out and about and find them and befriend them. Please accept me. I think there's still, I think there is like a big convention and I want to say like Vegas, like maybe every year or every other year. I want to get to that at some point. That'd be fun. That'd be cool. That'd be awesome. Um, yeah, here we have, yeah, I think we talked about it before. There's sort of like smaller versions of Comic-Con that have all the franchises and there's probably not a whole lot of Trek stuff. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe this, maybe this, Captain Picard show will be amazing and people will want to do more stuff again. Yeah, I could be wrong. If anyone knows out there, if there's an Australian Star Trek group, let me know. I know we've, we've had Catherine on from Star Walking before, the, uh, the um, Star Wars fan club, and they're a, they're a very strong community that organise lots of events and premiere screenings when the films come out. Uh, so there's got to be some Trekkies somewhere around. I have to go and make make new friends. There you go. That's a good goal to have. That's my challenge for the week. Or the month or the year. At <laughs> some point. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thanks so much, Mark. That's uh, And thank you for everybody that's been checking on in on us while we've been flat out. Uh, sorry, uh, real life's getting in the road of podcasting, but we'll, uh, we'll definitely keep potting and... Um, hopefully it won't be too far between episodes. Yeah, well, we're going to try. Yeah. Pod pod whenever we can. Anything else you want to chuck in before we sign off? Um, no, I think that's good. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, let's see. I do a couple of other podcasts. You can hear me talk about Star Wars on the Cantobite Dispatch. And hopefully soon you can hear me talking about Twin Peaks regularly on How's Annie. Yes. Check out both of those. They are two of my favorite pods. Oh, thank you. Uh, and how do we follow you on the social medias? Oh, yeah. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at EFLind. That's at E-F-L-I-N-D. Wonderful. And you can follow us on the socials. We're at He's Dead Jim Pod. And uh, please drop us an email. We'd love to hear from you. He's dead, Jim Pod at gmail.com. Uh, Emily, thanks so much. It's so good to talk to you. I've missed our chats. And uh, look forward to talking more Trek with you hopefully next weekend. 
Yes, for sure. Wonderful. Have a wonderful week. Bye. Bye.